0: Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back. In today's episode, we are picking up on the second half of a conversation with Doug Braun Harvey. Doug is based in San Diego, and he, along with co author Michael Vigarito, have published a very fun book, actually. It's called Treating Out of Control Sexual Behavior. Rethinking sex addiction. It's a way of talking about sexuality with pleasure and vitality and fun and passion. And really, Doug has been instrumental in changing the conversation nationally and even been behind some laws that have been changed in the area of sexual health. It's a combination of mental health and sexuality. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. So again, this is the second episode. If you've missed the first one, then just scroll up or down on your player and uh, you'll see it. It's the one right next to it, right before. But certainly if you want to just go ahead and dive in and it's self-contained by, it'll still be fun. Believe me, you probably will still want to go back and listen to the first one, but all right, let's dive right in. Now, the
0: dilemma with desire discrepancy is it moves too quickly to the focus on frequency. Yes. I, I I think desire, it gets confused. Frequency of sex is a different issue than desire. So one of the things I was going to say about desire is one thing a couple can experiment with is if you don't feel desirous of sex, we know people can get sexually excited if they just start having sex. So people think if they don't feel desire, they shouldn't move towards sex. But actually, many people start feeling sexually desirous after they start having sex. So have you experimented with that? Have you tried that? You know, Give it a shot and say, all right, I'll be willing to start having sex and then see what happens.
2: And to keep it to the context also of the exploitation, you know, understanding, even just in that frame, understanding unequal sexual desire and how one dialogues about it, because sometimes we trip over it and we end up being somewhat exploitive or exploited because of fear of having that dialogue. And so somebody feeling injured or hurt because they feel not desired by their partner because their partner's not getting an erection. They take it personally. And so then they get hurt. And so then you may be tempted to engage in sexuality in a way, in order... So the exploitation concept can be part of it where an open dialogue about that desire could really help from... So,
0: Anne, I'm going to translate open dialogue to a sexual health principle. Okay. Okay and that's the honesty yes sexual health principle so what we're really talking about now is how difficult it is to be honest about these experiences we have about sex how much we desire it what we like what we don't like these are difficult things for some people to be honest about and for sometimes people don't even know how to be honest about it, because they don't know what they like. And one of the primary reasons people don't know what they like is their relationship with masturbation. So if, you, if you're interested in, in, in how somebody has maybe doesn't know themselves sexually very well, ask them how frequently they masturbate. And we know there's a pretty good correlation between people who don't understand their body's responses and have anti-masturbation attitudes. You know, the way we learn about our body is through by being with our body. And if there's judgments or values about being with one's body by themselves and having pleasure as uh, not acceptable, uh, they'll probably be less literate and aware of their body.
2: So one of the principles that really helps with the two we're talking about, about consent and uh, non-exploitation exploitation. The other one is honesty. So yes. these principles actually really integrate with one another when you really hold them. So the idea of really learning authenticity and honesty, yep. can re- that's part of the, the six principles that you mentioned yeah. that they can So inter- I want to give one
0: quick t- parenting tip about honesty. It's just, it's just real quick. That parents, you know, it, 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 one of the most common places you get questions about sex is driving the car, you know, you, you know, you, all these different, you know, you're never ready for it, right? Somebody just all of a sudden asks a question out of the blue, and a parent's like, what do I say? When a parent freezes and is kind of scared about any particular sex question, here's one of the where you can institute one of the sexual health principles by using honesty. You you just take a little breath, calm yourself down because then we know if we take a breath, our brain slows down. Take a breath. (sighs) I really appreciate you being honest with me about that. And you just construct some sentence that does two things. You're grateful to your child for asking you and you're glad they were honest with you. However you want to say it, figure out a way to say that. Make that a a way to reinforce to your children you welcome their curiosity being brought to you, and you like that they're being honest about not knowing something about sex. If they learn that as a child, they'll learn how to do it with their partner. Years later, decades later, they'll be. And they'll better, keep asking they'll, the questions. That's right. They're gonna they're gonna keep asking questions. So there'll be a better sex. You're really li- making your child a better sex partner thirty years from now, by just practicing that tiny little 10-second moment.
2: Instead of, where did you hear that?
0: That's right, right? And, and you, the people who's, couldn't see who's that. Saying but when Anne said that, she had a big scowl on her face. You know, and oh, I was weird. like, you know, of course, in, uh, uh, we know, I, I know from doing sex histories with adults, oftentimes what adults remember about sex conversations with their parents is not so much the words, they remember the facial expression their parent had when they talked about it. And that's so true.
1: Can we grab uh, one more, probably, before we're going to have to wrap well, up? Well, we have our to time. talk about pleasure. You know, and I'm <laughs> so how about, how, let's throw in to shared values and pleasure. How about shared
0: that? values and pleasure. Well, shared values really is all that really means is human beings. When we have sex versus other mammals, when we have sex, sex has meaning to us. Meaning, we have brains that reflect. And, and contemplate the existential meaning of having sexual interactions with another person.
1: Unlike the bonobos. Right, unlike the <laughs> bonobos. That's right. The bonobos,
0: if you're not aware, are a, 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 a an ape uh, community that has en- enormous amounts of sexual activity. And what's interesting is they're the least violent yes, apes on the that's planet. Right. Uh, and they just have, they have sex with all sorts of people all the time. All, they're members of their community. So that, that's, that, that's where that comes from. But so, so shared values is really about making sure we understand the meaning of sex. We'll teach adolescents these six sexual health principles. A lot of therapists might have them in their waiting room, or have them in their wall. They're just hanging on a wall, and kids look up. Oh, what's that? You know, and they're kind of complaining. And it's an opportunity for a conversation. You don't start talking about this with youth. You just put the words somewhere and let them ask. They might be going through it and say, "Well, shared values." And one adolescent in particular was very proud about. Oh, I've got that shared values down. I know exactly what that is. And the therapist was very happy about this. Oh, geez, how do you understand shared values so confidently? He said, "No problem. We go." to the same church so there was this shorthand that because we have the same religion we have all the same values when it comes to sex and we don't even need to talk about it because our church tells us what our values are and so why do we need to talk about values we know what they are and because we go to the same church every sunday we have all the same values and so it's a way to avoid the conversation by finding shorthand avoidant ways to talk about values which are really difficult conversations for many people to have. So shared values is really just more about the meaning of sex and making sure, you know, if you're going to have sex with me, is it because you love me? Or is it because you're interested in having an orgasm with me? Or is it because the boys want to see if you can, you know, have me? Or the girls said, you know, you could never get the most handsome guy in school. So there I did. And, you know, I mean, what's the motive? What's the value here? And Um, understanding your, it's really important for you to understand your own value
2: to know whether you have a shared value, whether that's, I have a value for monogamy, or a value for openness, right? Or a value for different types of sexuality, right? In in acts,
0: or, you know? or values of uh, you know, I like to have sex with a, a whole range of people who express their genders in a variety of ways. That I might, I you know, the, the actual anatomy of the genitals of a person is far less important to me than how I feel with the person, uh, how the person identifies their gender is maybe not that important to me. The, the person may go by they, and uh, there's not even a he or she. It's a, and I, I might find myself very open and interested in being with somebody who lives their life in this way. And gosh, I never imagined myself capable of this. Uh, and the, these are all new ideas that we have to kind of constantly be aware of. Uh, that that this, is, this is something that I could find meaningful and, and, and important to me. And of course, the last one is pleasure. The idea, I'll just say two things about pleasure. The most current definition of sexual health by the US federal government is actually from um, uh, the Department of STDs and HIV. It's a subgroup of the federal government. They came up with a se- definition of sexual health in 2011. And uh, much like the World Health Organization I- definition I read to you, very similar, except the US government took the word pleasure out of the definition of sexual health.
1: <laughs> of course, we did. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This is the most, 2011, this is the most current definition of sexual health by a federal agency of the United States government. And it does not say the word pleasure in it. <laughs> so I can't use the most current definition of sexual health by our federal government because it isn't about balancing pleasure with safety. Mm, it's we all could about, say it's, it's, so much about that. Yeah, you're but right, let's right. You're <laughs> right. So I'll just leave with a story about pleasure. True story. You know, when you're the sexual health guy in the family, all your family members give you all these great stories, they know. So, my niece gave me this story. Uh, A neighbor came over to her house, and uh, the neighbor had a six year old daughter and the mother was really wanting to be a good mom and not shame her daughter about sexuality, and, so, and, and of course she came to my niece because my niece has this uncle, and so you know, it all, it all, you know, they come over and talk to her because she gets information from me. It's that how it works. <laughs> so anyways, they came over and had this conversation, and the mother told her this story. She said, my six-year-old. Now, her, she didn't use this language. I'm going to now use my sexual health language for the rest of the story. This is not how the mother told the story. But this mother, her six-year-old daughter, discovered her clitoris, now, what's so interesting about discovering the clitoris, it's the only part of the human body, male or female, uh, of, of any form of human body, that body part has only one function, and it's for pleasure. There is no other reason for the clitoris to exist in the human body other than for the body to feel pleasure. So when a girl or somebody with a clitoris discovers her clitor- their clitoris, it's kind of interesting because it's like, is this all it does? And when a six-year-old discovers their clitoris, they don't have the brain operations to generalize that this works here, and it'll also work at school. They can't do that till they're eight with abstract operations. So it has to work in the living room, and then let's see if it works in the kitchen, because they can't generalize that. So that's why six-year-olds are discovering their clitoris in all sorts of places, because they don't realize it'll work wherever they go. They have to, they have to see if it works wherever they go. So the six-year-old's seen if it works in the car seat, and she's seen if it works in. the grandma's house and she's seen if it works in the cereal aisle and you know every time she's seen if her clitoris works her mother's being very kind and non-shaming and says honey remember what i told you you know you need to do that in private it's okay to touch yourself there but you need to do that in private and so that was her thing all about privacy good boundaries right very good well, this goes on for several weeks, and I'm sure any parent out there that's been a parent of a six-year-old knows one correction does not change behavior. So this went on for several weeks. Well, after a couple of weeks, they're in the kitchen. Mother looks down, and the daughter, senior for clitoris works in the kitchen. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she starts this you know, speech that the six-year-old is very familiar with right now. Well, the six-year-old is done with this talk. She's had it now with mom. So she looks up at her mother, puts her hands on her hips, looks up at her mother, and says, Mom. If you just tried it once, you'd know how good it feels. <laughs> Mom left out the pleasure. Yes. Mom didn't tell her, honey, I know that feels really good, but you need to do it in private. So if you don't let children know, you know sex feels really good. And that would, it's okay that it feels and good. It's, and, it's, and, and it's actually supposed to feel good, mm-hmm. and it's wonderful that it feels good. If you leave that out, you look like an ignorant sex educator to a six year old. That makes a lot of sense. They know that it feels good. They just don't know you know.
2: Well, you're saying, too, just to kind of wrap the pleasure into mm-hmm. the rest of the dialogue yeah. we've been having one is that to have a healthy desire around pleasure with yourself. Mm-hmm. And to acknowledge it inside yourself, that pleasure is not just a shameful, selfish act, but it's part of what helps us engage in the world. The bovos <laughs> maybe have something there, but that to incorporate the concept of pleasure in the dialogue around sexuality with your adolescent, with your partner, and in the context of the other principles mm-hmm. that you're talking about. So even if you're talking about in a, let's just say, a committed relationship, and you're talking about... What makes you feel pleasurable being aware that you can talk about it as a sexual desire and a wanting without it only representing i think we make a mistake sometimes when in couples talking about desire being about the other person Mm -hmm. if i have desire or i don't have desire it has to do about whether i'm attracted to you or not attracted to you yes and so it's really hard for us to separate that and go You have pleasurable experiences. has something to do with yourself and nothing to do with the other person, whether it's in your mind, because our mind is a very rich, and we don't allow that in the dialogue enough. Like Mm -hmm. what goes on your mind that actually brings pleasure to you and then sharing it with your partner? It's not just a cause-effect relationship.
0: Yeah, it's not just physiology. Physiology, and that allows,
2: if we bring in the idea of even the authenticity hurting but not being exploitive, I feel pleasure about these other ideas And being able to hear that without then shaming your partner Mm -hmm. and say, God, I have a different reaction about that. Mm -hmm. That doesn't feel pleasurable to me and it felt pleasurable to you. Can we engage about that rather than you're disgusting because you think that, right? Right? Like what brings us pleasure is very different. And the more we're able to dialogue and engage in it, we even open it up in ourselves. Maybe your partner's brought something that sounds pleasurable to them. And your first reaction is, ugh. But maybe if you explore that, maybe you stay in that uck for you, or maybe you realize it's about cultural assumptions that you've been putting on yourself. And so what I hear you saying, Doug, the sexual health aspect that makes this conversation sexy is that we're encouraging conversations like that, not just about how to avoid STDs. We're really part of a movement that wants to encourage a dialogue about What is pleasurable to you? What is pleasurable to the people that you're sexually involved with Mm -hmm. or want to be? Mm -hmm. And engage in an equal dialogue around that, that we have differences in those things and that those differences can be okay. And maybe they're not acceptable to you, but that's okay. Then that's an equal dialogue to say, maybe we do split here because what you desire and what I desire is so different. But we can do that without... Creating pressure or shame that engages a whole nother realm that makes sex not safe in a relationship.
0: If somebody's really interested in what you just said and would like to learn more about what you just said, the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski is a brilliant book about our relationship with pleasure and the essentialness of pleasure. So I'd really encourage anybody if they're interested to check out Emily's book. It's a winner.
1: So I'm really glad you gave that reference and we're going to talk at the end again about your book mm-hmm. and but just one last thing as I was sitting here imagining I could you know we've been talking about pleasure and it's been very enhancing and just robust but I can't imagine people saying, you know, but what about?
0: The asexuals. Uh, the, I, I, well, I mean, the, the whole asexuals. time Anne was talking, I'm saying, don't forget the asexuals. And <laughs> I was waiting to talk about <laughs> oh, it. Beginning. So I, that, well, that, that, that's what I was thinking.
1: So the asexuals, but also like we had a recording not too long ago with someone speaking of sexual addiction. And mm. uh, and you at the beginning had mentioned your language around that and the thinking about that. And it's really important to bring that in. Mm. So it just my thought is like, what if we do a pass on not where it's not pleasurable right where it goes wrong Mm -hmm. from that perspective just to loop back loop that back in yeah
0: i think you know i'm glad you brought that because i think what i see with people around sex addiction and and moving to the idea of sex addiction is a couple of things first of all sex addiction became a very popular conceptualization of sexual behavior being out of control in the 80s, and it overlapped with the advent of the alcohol uh, industry, (laughs) the treatment of alcoholism, and the emerging treatment industry of alcoholism became very popular and very important, and it was a very important development in addressing alcoholism in the country. But it also coincided with a second event, and that was the advent of HIV. So not only did you have this whole idea of addiction and treatment of addiction and a hope for a way of treating addiction, but we had a threat for sexual behavior unheard of on the planet. And so when you put that threat, you have to figure out how do we understand sexual behavior that people would engage in that could have that threat and they still do it. How do we understand that? And it fit very nicely with the idea of how does somebody love their children and still get drunk? Mm -hmm. You know, when something is so contradictory and assaultive to our basic values, we have to figure out how is it human beings are capable of this. And one of the ways in the 80s that we came to a conclusion that human beings do this is it's through addictive behavior. You can't help it. So you, have, you have no That's an addic- that, that, Or that we cross a threshold. Mm-hmm. An addiction is some notion of crossing a threshold into a way of functioning that we call addiction. And there's a whole understanding of how people think and feel and behave and, 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 and function once they've crossed that threshold of addiction. Now, the interesting thing about addiction theory is for many people, addiction theory means once you cross into a diagnostic or clinical entity of addiction, you can't go back. You know, it's like the body doesn't return to never ever having to worry about addiction again. So that's why they call addiction a lifelong disease, and you have to treat it the rest of your life chronic because and chronic disease. There's this there's this idea that once you've moved into that territory, you know, you don't you don't you don't get to move back home where it wasn't, and that's crucial to addiction treatment. Accepting that is essential to the success of an addiction treatment method. So when sex. Began to be, when sex began to be seen as an addiction, it meant that somehow a person's sexual life can move into some range of pathology, disorder, disruption, harm, that those people now can't go back to the way other people live sexually. And if they don't monitor this successfully, they will just go back and hurt people again. And that, is a, well, that was a very powerful narrative in the 80s that, w- that, that combined around alcoholism treatment and the presence of HIV. And it stuck. It was a very user-friendly idea. And I think the reason it was so user-friendly is it emphasized the fear of sex. And in our culture... And abstinence. And abstinence. Uh, but in our culture, more importantly, we're comfortable talking about sex when it hurts people we really have a hard time with pleasure. So what got absent from the whole HIV conversation, let's say, was that the part of the reason people were getting infected with HIV was because safety and pleasure were in conflict, and most human beings let pleasure win out when safety and pleasure are in conflict. And we weren't addressing that around the, the dilemmas people were in around preventing HIV infection. How can you have really pleasurable sex and try to stay safe? And the only solution we had was a latex condom, and that wasn't very effective. So sex addiction became this way to sort of understand how people behave this way. And I don't think it's an accurate understanding of the behavior. The American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, which is the association in the United States, ASEC is its acronym, they certify the sex therapists in the United States. Now, this is really important for the listeners. A certified sex addiction therapist is not a sex therapist. I've been to many talks right here in Texas where people have said to me, well, I go see a certified sex addiction therapist. Isn't that a sex therapist? And I'm stunned that uh, could because here's just a consumer piece of information to become a certified sex addiction therapist in the united states which by the way is certified by a private company not a an organization like ASEC, which is a nonprofit membership organization it's done by a private company that certifies sex addiction therapists and to be a certified sex addiction therapist requires no training in human sexuality at all you can you can go through all of the training to become a certified sex addiction therapist, and they don't require you to take any courses in human sexuality.
2: Is that because it's so focused on the addiction concepts and the idea of treating addiction?
0: Yeah, and particularly the sex addiction model is is a trauma-focused model. Even even the association of sex addiction therapists has trauma in the name of their membership association. So it's very much a trauma lens that they see and understand sex addiction. Now, other ideas have emerged uh, around neuropathology in the brain and a variety of other things, but there's still this basic notion that something physiologically, something psychologically, something's going on, you've entered a state that we call addiction, and that's a disordered state. And I just don't believe that this form of human behavior is a disease or a pathology. I believe it's a problem. We have some sexual disorders, we have a lot of problems when it comes to sex, and then most of us all have sexual worries. So there's worries, problems, disorders, and I think out-of-control sexual behavior is a problem that many people with this problem also have diseases. They might have depression, they might have drug addiction, they might have bipolar disorder, they might have a personality disorder, they might have Parkinson's disease, and they're taking medications, you know, it could be a variety of things, but the actual out-of-control sexual behavior in and of itself as a separate entity is a human behavior problem. And so I define out-of-control sexual behavior as when a person's sexual urges, thoughts, or behaviors feel out of control to them. So it's, it's a subjective sense of oneself. I feel out of control with my sexual urges, thoughts, or behaviors. Now, does that mean they have a disease or a disorder or a pathology? No. But they have a conflict. They have a worry. They're, they're, they're distressed. We're distressed about a lot of things. That doesn't mean we have a disease or a disorder or a psychiatric condition. And so that's my distinction. I just really see it as a human behavior problem.
2: Would you see it, you're saying, if you feel distressed?
0: right? It's a client-centered experience. The client has to feel distressed.
2: And so if people around the client, their partner, mm-hmm. et cetera, are stating your behavior is out of control you're coming home, you're having sexuality, you're out of control, but the person doesn't have distress about it. Mm -hmm. What is your feeling or thought about that?
0: The person is sharing their opinion with the other person. I have an opinion.
2: Mm -hmm. I
0: have an opinion. Your sexual behavior is out of control from my perspective. They may have a big conflict about that, but that doesn't mean the person's sexual behavior is out of control.
2: Because it may be the way that they want to relate to the world and that level of sexuality is what works for them. And what's not working for them is that, those in their life maybe it's not matching and that they have to figure out whether it what their relationship to sex matches what it is their value and desire for those around you and how that goes together so let me
0: translate that from a sexual health conversation perspective first of all oftentimes sexual addiction or out of control sexual behavior emerges after a period of secrecy and deception Mm. So they weren't being honest. Mm-hmm. So that sexual health principle was being violated for quite some time. You
2: mean the dialogue around it Right. Comes the, di- up.
0: The, the, the dialogue that comes usually from some sort of discovery, right. disclosure. Somebody sees something, somebody learns something. Suddenly, they mm-hmm. didn't know it. They're mm-hmm. surprised. They're shocked. They're injured. It's out there now. And so finally, there's going to be some honest conversation about what's been going on. So if they're gonna move from violating that sexual health principle to not violating it, and that's tough, that's not easy to do. Then there's shared values. They may be having this honest conversation and they're really discovering your values and my values are very different. And we're having this painful conversation, for crying out loud, that we've avoided for how long. And then the really crux of it, with I think is so much why the sex addiction model is so appealing to so many people. This is what I find pleasurable, This is what you find pleasurable. And a way to resolve that painful differences around what people find pleasurable or not is to have one person's pleasure called an addiction. And so those pleasures are seen as an addictive, out-of-control kind of a disordered state, and so you have to abstain from it. That's the solution to this really difficult pleasure dynamic. So I'll give an example. A couple has been in a non-sexual marriage for 10 years, They've been they've been together twenty years, but for ten years they've been in a non-sexual marriage is defined as sexual intercourse less than uh, ten times a year, uh, any kind of sexual contact. It's pretty much a non-sexual relationship, and so they're in a non-sexual relationship, and one of the members of the couple is masturbating quite a lot and having uh, solo sex and is having orgasms and pleasure, and the hypothesis is that his masturbation is a sex addiction and if he stops masturbating and it'll take it'll now put his sexual energy back into focusing on the coupled sex and therefore they'll start having a robust sexual life so he goes this masturbation gets discovered and he goes off to a sex addiction treatment program and the sex addiction treatment program says to him you know yes that all that masturbation is your sex addiction so you need to stop masturbating so you can become available to your partner and that sexual energy will go there that the idea. That's a sex addiction interpretation of that.
2: And what you're saying then, in, what would your interpretation
0: be of that? Well, first of all, this is not sexual behavior that is wor- that has to be concerned about STIs, HIV, or pregnancy. So that's off the books. This, you know, Solo sex is not bringing that to risk. It's consensual, uh, unless the person is watching children having sex with uh, uh, you know, with adults, or unless the person's watching images where maybe sometimes people like will record people undressing in locker rooms without their consent, and people you know sometimes people watch videos of things that people were in sexual situations without being known they were being filmed or camered. That's non consensual. So some people have that, but that's a small exception. That's not the typical way, but they're out there. So usually solo sex is consensual um, and non exploitive in the sense that now this is where political values get in. Many people believe the production of sexual imagery cannot be anything but exploitive that it's impossible for it to not be exploitive or sexual be imagery what you're
2: meaning that listeners may know that as pornography but right, in a right. sexual health way you're saying right. sexual imagery. A
0: sexual entertainment imagery mm-hmm. uh, you know it's, it's imagery designed to arouse and uh, create orgasms and pleasure or to reflect somebody's erotic interests they look at images that look like the things that they turn them on and so some people believe the production of these images whether they're done commercially or amateur cannot be anything but exploitive. Some people just take that stance. But that's a stance, not necessarily the actual circumstances of whether it's exploitive or not. So we have to kind of sift that out. So oftentimes, sexual imagery will be a, a values or a principle difference in couples where one person sees sexual imagery by definition as exploitive and the other person doesn't. These are big arguments. Yeah, those are really big, big arguments. arguments. And and that the solution to this argument is to the sex addiction folks in particular, would come down on the side that sexual imagery probably is exploitive and that you should abstain from it because it is exploitive. But I, I think the person themselves has to figure out when sexual imagery for them becomes exploitive in so their you, own value system. Yeah,
1: back to the to the case. Yeah. Because you had just asked, well, what would, what would be the interpretation of the case? Yeah,
0: so done? so th- this was one of the things the couple had to deal with was one of the persons of the couple saw sexual imagery as exploitive and objectifying, and the other person didn't. So and you they, have a values they had, conflict. They had yeah. they had a big values conflict, but it was honest and it was out in the open. Mm-hmm. And he had pleasure from that experience. And you know what? She finally said she did too. And so they were able to. So when it. the erotic became no longer a secret, he got to know her better. He had this whole idea she would be, you know, totally upset that he likes looking at imagery. So he was off
2: on his own and. And don't, he, we and don't have time to jump into it. He didn't, ta- he, to didn't an attachment he didn't dialogue, he, di- he didn't know to. her. Right. He
0: didn't know her. Mm-hmm. And it was again, f- sharing who we are erotically is an am- amazingly powerful way to get to know people we love. I think that's a wonderful thing. And if I can
2: follow Sue's lead in the yes but, mhm. What would happen in a in, in that same dialogue, that same dynamic? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe not the same because you, you've you've really highlighted a lot of the shifts in values and 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 I hear what you're saying is if you. And mainly, I'm also
0: talking about like four to five years of a couple sitting with each other and getting to know each
2: getting, other. Uh, absolutely, that didn't happen in
0: a month. <laughs> and, and, and and you're and you're talking about
2: the whole like the the addiction model being pathologizing. Yes. And to say let's remove that sexually behavior and let's remove it and get you to stop that. And then there'll be sexual health, right? Right. Like, so your model is that, and I think it's a beautiful addition to this is like, no, let's bring that in and really get to know it more deeply Mm -hmm. and how the two people relate to it. And it
0: took years. Without having to identify with a disease to have the conversation.
2: So what would you say though, if you, if the individual, which I guess is what you are saying, if the person is distressed, what if the partner is seeing and feeling exed out because... Watching, what is the term? Sexual, sexual imagery. Sexual imagery. Thank yeah, you. I'm yeah, going to practice mm-hmm. that. Yeah, practice good. that. See, I love sexu- it when
0: people have sexual health conversations and then they want to change their language. I'm changing I my love language. That. I weird. love that. Good so we're you. watching,
2: watching sexual imagery, but ends up doing it somewhat compulsively. As a psychologist, there mm-hmm. is compulsivity. Yes, right. So right. we So if we're we're moving away from the addiction, you're moving away from the addiction model. Mm-hmm but we're seeing things and there's a compulsive connection between sexual imagery and masturbation that becomes in some ways siloed off right and that can happen where that the individual finds more pleasure through sexual imagery and compulsive that, that kind of precludes the ability to be relational with that. What would you say about that?
0: Well, you've linked a lot of things and made assumptions along the way that I, I have that no I was, idea if they're true. I have that's no, true. I mean, it's, like, it's a lovely story, but I don't know if it fits the client. Right. We, right. Have, to, we have to get to know the client. So the way I work with out-of-control sexual behavior, it's a very assessment, upfront activity. Mm -hmm. So we look at if there's mental illness, is there a relationship with drugs and alcohol that's problematic? Is there physical illnesses or medical conditions that haven't been identified? Are they physically safe in the home? Is there domestic violence? Is there suicide? Is there other kind of issues around lack of safety in the home? That has to be looked at before we even do anything else. Got it. Because those those can all be factors Mm -hmm. that create dysregulated sexual behavior.
2: Right. So, so I guess we're going to have to start wrapping, but I guess what I'm saying is like, in we have been, which I love, sex health, sex positive, and bringing things in, but we are also adding that there are things that can be, I'm going to ask you to find the word, because now all I can hear is, is okay. but maybe
1: compulsive, or what you're saying is,
0: Here's you, how it, I would say or it. Or if okay. you're
1: violating these principles. There's yes. where
0: I'm going to go. Thank you. There's sexual behavior, That you're calling compulsive, but I'm going to say violates one or more of the sexual health principles. Okay, say more. And that when somebody is uh, maybe secretively masturbating at a high frequency or having sex with somebody outside of their relationship agreement or somebody's, you know, whatever they're doing, they're violating one or more of those sexual health principles quite frequently in order to engage in that activity. So my model says this, you don't have a disease. You need to align your life with six principles of sexual health. If you start aligning your sexual life with these six principles, you won't have out of control sexual behavior. They're they're mutually exclusive.
1: So I think that is a really great kind of summary. And so part of it is we're going to on our show notes really outline these six principles again. And you had said that maybe there would be a paper or do you have anything to- I,
0: I I I do have a couple of things. What I'm gonna probably link people to is my website, which has a lot of resources. Which is what? Uh my dot uh, com The company we have is the Harvey Institute, where we're our mission is to educate health professionals to have sexual health conversations. We believe healthcare in America will improve if the doctor, the nurse, the therapist, the OBGYN you go to Is capable of having a sexual health conversation with you, your sexual health will improve.
1: And you have made so many remarkable national strides at changing this conversation. Uh, Yeah, let me tell you a couple.
0: Uh, California law just changed in June, where now all foster youth. In every county of the state of California is required to attend both comprehensive sex education classes. The social worker has to make sure the youth attended both the junior high and high school comprehensive sex education. Secondly, all the social workers, all the foster parents, all the judges, all the attorneys, everybody who comes in contact as a professional with the foster youth has to be trained how to have a sexual health conversation. Love it's it. law in the state of California That's and it's a fully great. funded law. That's and great. this came out of our intervention we did with LA County. So we're very excited that an, inter- an intervention we started in LA County has now become the law of the state of California. That's fantastic. Uh, so, you know, so, you know I, I think the thing why I'm so passionate about doing podcasts like this, I really believe sexual health conversations matter. And you never know the ripple effects of these conversations. Mm-hmm. We, we'll, we'll never know what somebody might do with a sentence one of us said here, how it might help them, how it might make them more curious, how it might make them more open, it might make them more interested in something. Less shaming with their child, which could have a... That's lifelong right. ripple effect less, right. shame,
1: less shaming and more interested and more curious, curious more
0: interested right so, so I'm, I'm very committed to these kinds of conversations with people like you who are so generous with creating forums for the public to you know have these sort of you know uh, conversations with people they would maybe normally never get a chance to meet like you know like me or something yeah, exactly. so I'm, I, I just thank you for that and I think you're you, you, none of us are going to know what the outcome of our conversation has been
2: Though we would love to hear from our listeners yeah, what
1: outcome that you did have that you're aware <laughs> of. Yeah, what, what, are you, what were you dying to say to Doug or any follow-ups or anything like that? Feel free to just uh, let us know. And
0: the book is called Treating Out of Control Sexual Behavior Rethinking sex addiction, and so it's really the sexual health model for looking at out-of-control sexual behavior. Many of the things we did talk about here at the end are in the book. Now, the book is for professionals and or anybody who's treating or providing services for people with out-of-control sexual behavior who wants to be better informed. We are in the process right now of writing a, a companion book for the public on how they can have their own guide on how to use these uh, approaches without necessarily having to go to a therapist, or a therapist can read *Treating Out of Control, Rethinking Sex Addiction, and their client could be reading the book we're writing. And they could just sit together and work through this.
1: That's awesome. One of the things that we have found with our listeners is that a whole lot of them that aren't therapists, are they're very smart and interested, and they might grab it up anyway because uh, I I think
0: they could find it helpful
1: yes it's actually you know there's a hungry world out there to learn and to grow so they might not even wait for it but in case you would like to there's another one coming for sure that's that's right so stay tuned to that
2: Doug, I really appreciate you being on this podcast. I think you've opened my eyes to a lot of things. I'm hearing my language grow from it. And the reason we wanted you on here was for the exact reason you just said, uh, to increase a dialogue out there in a way that adds to the richness of more positivity in this context. So I think you've really, really brought our listeners a vast amount of knowledge thank
0: you oh thank you for having me it's been a Absolutely. joy
1: and when you say you know you never know what the impact is i can tell you from my awareness of your work even many many years ago i can remember literally leaving with a different mindset and sort of the, a shift and being open and then all the people that i've seen since then have have been touched by that so it really is a mm. incredibly wonderful ripple effect of opening us from our own, where we don't even know, you know, we don't even know that we're clamping down on something. So it's, it's really refreshing.
2: And we would love to hear from listeners out there. Get on our website at www.therapistuncensored.com. And there's a portion there. You're welcome to give us feedback. There's an Ask a Therapist. So if you have a question for uh, Doug, I'm sure you'd be willing to maybe uh, take it on. And inform us, and we can get back to them ourselves. Right.
0: Get in touch with me. Uh, If the listener calls you, you get in touch with me, and I'd be glad to chat with you and have you have the conversation with your listener. Sounds exciting.
1: Sounds great. And for those of you that are tracking and that are on our waiting list for our online course, it's happening. Uh, We haven't forgotten about it. It is getting better and better, so stay tuned. And last thing, we want to ask you all, if you enjoyed this podcast and if you're still hanging around uh, and hearing this, (laughs) then we really what you could do to help us and just give us fuel for our fire here and keep us going and bringing on guests like this is to go to your podcast player and rate us. If you'll give us an honest rating, it makes a really, really big difference on a cascade of things. So. So our request for today would be to go and give us a rating. And in the meantime, we will see you around the bend. We've got lots in store and hang tight.
0: Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.